Just before I ran into Angus Keogh and damn near got my backside shot to hell, Tom Jessup, Jorge Canado, and me drove 300 head of prime longhorn steers up to the San Carlos Indian Reservation in Arizona. We'd made the push up to San Carlos a couple of three times every year whenever the Bureau of Indian Affairs had to make up a shortfall from one of its regular beef suppliers, and I didn't think this trip was going to be any different to all the others at first. By the time San Carlos came into sight, on that boiling spring afternoon, 1890, we'd been seven days on the trail, for the reservation lay a hundred miles from home, and the country we'd lately crossed had been hard, inhospitable, and made a dozen times worse by a hot, rainless spell of weather. They must have seen us coming long before we got there, Tom and me doing our best to ride flank, swing, and point all at once, and Jorge riding drag and looking out for our six-horse remuda. They likely saw our red dust first, for a thousand and two hundred split hooves can kick up plenty of that in such bone-dry country. And as we drew nearer through the choking haze, they probably heard us whistling and yelling to keep the cattle on the move, and their answering balls of protest and the castanet-like clicking of their horns knocking together. Yep, they saw us coming, and we saw them watching. As the dust cleared momentarily, I saw the reservation above the line of my tugged-up bandana. Not once had I ever been to San Carlos without thinking what a god-awful beggarly place it was. The government had put the Apaches on it fifteen years earlier and tried to turn them into farmers. Only trouble was, the land was dry and empty. The reservation spalled across two million acres or thereabouts, and yet, by my reckoning, less than eighty were given over to agriculture, which meant that a lot of Apaches had a lot of time to do a lot of brooding. The reservation itself was a crazy jumble of wickiups standing shoulder to shoulder as far as the eye could see, the entire rancheria hemmed up by seamed red mesas and bulky volcanic mountains that were blued by distance. The smoke from a thousand cook fires hung over the reservation like gathering storm heads, and before long I knew we'd start to smell the place too, because they'd crowded ten thousand or so Apaches of one band or another onto it, and when you've got that many people living in those kind of conditions, you'll get that same indefinable stink no matter what your color. Then the first of the cattle began to angle around the wickiups on the southern fringe of the rancheria and I heeled my Mustang up to the front of the slow-moving herd. After seven days on the move, the longhorns were weary and passive, and stupid, though they might be, they learned pretty much to just keep putting one hoof down in front of the other. All we had to do now was keep them moving in the right direction. A few Apache kids started running along beside the slab-sided cattle. Older bucks and squaws came out of their poor-looking homes of brush, blankets, and animal skins to watch as we rode past. I glanced down at them, knowing I would find no hint of welcome on their flat, bronzed faces or in their dark, dull eyes, only a kind of resigned acceptance of their miserable, futureless fate. Lord, I hated San Carlos. A few hundred yards ahead, I spied the Indian Agency, a sturdy log building with a large padlock storage cabin tucked into one end, and a vast corral into which our cattle would be herded at the rear. Word of our arrival must have gone out ahead of us because Agent Smollett, who ran the place, was already waiting for us in the wide yard out front. He was a big, overweight man in a collarless white shirt and black pants, fifty years of age with a bald head, little pebble-lensed glasses, and an apple-sized cyst just behind his left ear. 
Unusual for Indian agents, he was as honest as a day is long, and I liked him a lot.